This is the Old Testament reading. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now this man used to go up year by year from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her severely, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk at Shiloh, Hannah rose and presented herself before the Lord. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made this vow, O Lord of hosts, if only you will look on the misery of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a male child, then I will set him before you as a Nazarite until the day of his death. He shall drink neither wine nor intoxicants, and no razor shall touch his head. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. The God of Israel grant the petition you have made to him. The word of the Lord. Good morning again, everyone. It's great to be with you, and welcome to all of our visitors and um, any crazy in-laws that happen to be visiting with their children. Hope you guys have a wonderful uh, Father's Day. Um, and uh, we are starting a, a new series here this summer uh, called The Great Prayers of the Bible, where we're looking at some of these uh, prayers that have been codified in Holy Scripture, not just instruction about prayer, but models of prayer. And this morning, we're starting with um, Hannah's prayer in chapter 1. And so let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, would you meet us here in this place? Would you meet us where we are? Would you let us sense your presence, sense your healing, sense your invitation? Some of us come into this room uncertain about so much in life, maybe even uncertain about you, and I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Others are carrying around deep wounds. We've been hurt by a friend, by a parent, maybe a church leader, we need your comfort. And for some of us, the fog of depression or disillusionment or even despair, as in Hannah's case, has settled in and just won't seem to lift. Maybe we're carrying around anxieties about the coming week or shame and regret from the last week, and we need your calming presence. All of us this morning, would you give us Jesus? Would you let us see his beauty and let us be drawn into his embrace and his life and his mission? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this passage talks about infertility, and for people that have never struggled with infertility, it's hard to understand how difficult and sad it can be. Katie and I never um, dealt with it personally, but as a pastor, I've had a front row seat to many couples that have struggled with this and gone through what I think is a great deal of pain, and maybe we could even call it trauma 
In fact, research shows that women facing infertility, the, the level of emotional conflict and trauma that they feel is similar to a woman who's facing cancer or HIV or chronic pain. That's a, a lot. That's powerful. But the difference is that when you're facing cancer and dealing with that, most people around you know, your friends know, and they share your sadness, and they have some measure of understanding about what you may be going through. But few people know when a couple is wrestling through infertility, and even if they do, unless they've been through it, it's very difficult to empathize and understand the depth of feeling. And we have to recognize that even with prayer, that there's not always a happy ending to these stories. Now, imagine with me for a moment being infertile in a, couple, in a culture where a woman's entire identity is wrapped up in being married first and then bearing a male son. Her whole identity, her purpose, as it were, is tied up in producing offspring. And the word that was used for people who couldn't was barrenness. It's a very female-oriented word because the onus was always on her. She was always to blame if the couple couldn't have children. Barrenness was a physical, it was a relational, a social, it was a spiritual affliction. And that's what Hannah is dealing with. And it sets off one of the longest sort of theological, historical narratives in all of the Bible, that is Samuel and Kings. And the Old Testament arose, as many of you guys know, in a very patriarchal, very male-dominated, male-oriented society. And so the Bible reflects that in many ways. But you often find these subtle but very countercultural and counter-narrative, as it were, examples like this, that this long historical narrative is set off by the story of a woman's faithfulness, that is Hannah. And notably, the two men in this narrative, Hannah's husband <clears throat> Elkanah and the priest Eli, end up looking sort of like a couple of doofuses. Elkanah shames Hannah about her tears and says, aren't I enough? It's classic male thinking, right? I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to fix it with my ego. And then Eli thinks she's drunk instead of praying, and he also tries to shame her. But Hannah's infertility wasn't her only sadness because she shares her husband with a very petulant woman who provokes her constantly, probably over her lack of children, and which is far more than a personal loss worth tears. But in a culture in which she couldn't inherit property, and her children would be the only way that she could inherit her husband's property, that if Elkanah died, then everything would go to Peninnah and her children. And so she would likely be left on the street. So it's a very insecure situation that Hannah finds herself. But beyond that, barrenness was seen to be a curse by God, that Hannah must have done something wrong in order to not be blessed with children. Well, thankfully, Elkanah does, in fact, love Hannah, and he doesn't abandon her, and he actually treats her with a special level of kindness, which is probably, by the way, why Peninnah is so dreadful to her. 
So she's cared for, she's loved, but she carries around this terrible disgrace. Even in the Gospel of Luke, Elizabeth, who is eventually gives birth to John the Baptist, it, she is seen as a disgrace when she is not able to bear children. And she's shamed by Elkanah. Aren't I enough? And she's constantly degraded by her sister wife. Now, I don't know of anyone in this room that's in exactly those same circumstances, but how many of us understand her weeping? How many of us understand being so grief-stricken that she's not eating? She says that she's in great anguish and grief in verse 16, and she's experiencing this year after year after year. Now, I want us to walk away with just three things from this narrative, and I want to do so quickly because it's summer, and I told you that my sermons would be short, or at least shorter. But I think this passage gives us permission to weep, and it gives us permission to ask, and it gives us permission to hope. So first of all, permission to weep. The Bible is exceedingly honest about how difficult life is. And I can't think of a time in all of Scripture where tears are looked upon negatively. Men weep openly in the Bible. The Psalms, the prayer book of Israel, is replete with tears, with prayers of tears. And the Bible tells us of a Savior who weeps. This passage tells us that tears cried in God's presence are beautiful tears, and they're redemptive tears, and they're cathartic tears. Hans Christian Andersen says in his little story, The Little Mermaid, but a mermaid has no tears, and therefore she suffers so much more. Isn't that so true? Tears are like steam coming out of a teapot. It's letting the pressure out. But of course, Hannah needed more than just a good cry, even though that can be so helpful and therapeutic. She needed to weep before a God who knew her. She needed to cry tears before a God who loved her and cared for her and respected and honored her tears. In fact, she poured out her soul to such an extent that this kind of clueless priest thinks that she's drinking. But God, you see, is not like him. He never says, get it together. He never says, how about a little decorum in the sanctuary? He never says, if you only love Jesus a little bit more, you wouldn't be so sad all the time. He honors our tears. He recognizes the difficulty and the pain and the sorrow of life. And Hannah cries at Shiloh. She cries in public worship. And so we should sort of make space. We should honor the tears that are cried here. We should expect that there would be sorrow, lament, and grief in public worship. There is room for tears in church. First of all, this passage gives us permission to weep, but secondly, it gives us permission to ask. And it's an interesting ask, isn't it? Because Hannah sounds like those people in the cinematic moments where they're caught 
in something, they're in a tight spot, and they bargain, God, if you will get me out of this tight spot, I will give up smoking. If you'll get me out of this, I'll give more money to the poor. I will volunteer at an orphanage. And it's, it's a bargaining type of ask. And she sounds like she's bargaining with God. And I think all of us would instinctively think there's something wrong with that, because that's religion, that's not grace, right? But the narrative doesn't actually condemn her for asking in this way. And actually, we see other places in Scripture where people in prayer have this negotiation with God. We see this with Abraham negotiating with God about the destruction of Sodom. We see Jacob clearly negotiating, bargaining with God in Genesis 28. Go and check it out this afternoon. Moses at least negotiates with God in the episode of the golden calf. So maybe what this text is after is not saying that Hannah is after some sort of quid pro quo relationship, but this sort of negotiation, this sort of talking with God and discussing the subject is a sign of seriousness. And in fact, the text talks about it as her making a vow. It's not a bargain, but it's a promise. And she says, God, this is what I want you to do. You see, she's very upfront. She asks. She says, God, this is what is on my heart. This is what is grieving me, and I want you to do something about it. She says, I want a child, not Lord willing or not if you have enough time, God, to think about this. She says, God, I am grieving before you. Would you please give me a male heir? She longed to bear a child, and she promised to give that child back to him. The most precious thing that she could imagine, she gives it back to God, much like how God gives up his most precious possession for us. But notice this. What she wants, what will ultimately make her happy, is larger than just the provision of a child. She pours out her soul to God in anguish and great sorrow in verse 15. And then in verse 17, Eli says, go in peace. He doesn't give any guarantee, but he says, go in peace. May the Lord be with you. And then all of a sudden in verse 18, she went on her way and her face was no longer downcast. Wait, what? What happened? Is she now with child? No, because in verse 20, somewhere down the road in the narrative, she does get pregnant. But what's going on? Perhaps it's the cathartic nature of tears, that she's cried in God's presence and she feels better. Perhaps that's part of it. Perhaps it's the word of the priest, the spiritual authority that gives her the blessing and says, may God's blessing go with you. And there's something to be said about that. When another person shares with you the blessing of God and recognizes your difficulty. Or perhaps we, he, we see here that her request isn't simply a selfish wish. It's not just something that she wants only for herself. She sees her childbearing in a larger narrative. She sees herself as participating in a grander story. And this is where we get permission to hope. That there is a personal God who receives her tears, who knows her name. You see, the the story ends, at least in this narrative, how we might expect it to end in a good story. Hannah goes home, she conceives, she has a child, and she dedicates them to the service 
of the Lord and lives happily ever after. But as I said, this story is setting off a long narrative that's very critical to the story of redemption in the Bible. Is this woman's grief so easily resolved just by having a child? I wonder if Hannah's tears are more profound than the surface narrative lets on. Think with me for a minute. She lives in a very unjust system that seems at every turn to be working against her prosperity and happiness and fulfillment. From God, even, it says that God closed her womb, and that seems a little bit unjust. If God is that involved in the personal story and the details of everyone's story, it seems like God is against her in some way. She is paired with this taunting co-wife, this petulant person that won't let her forget that she has children and Hannah doesn't. She seems that uh, she has very little agency in the world and very little power. And when she goes to Shiloh, she's confronted by this sort of accusatory priest that she must be drunk to be praying like this. Hannah's only recourse in this system is to return to the God who it says closed her womb in the first place. This has a very Job-like feel that Job is in great grief and sorrow, and his only recourse is to go to the God who the narrative says is causing it to begin with. Now, we're not going to weigh in on all of the specifics of how God works His providence specifically in people's lives. That's for another time. But when we hear her pray at Shiloh, it's very interesting and very informative because her prayer centers simply on having a child, as if that is the only thing that she wants. That is the biggest thing that she could hope for, and certainly it's not insignificant. But if you turn the page over to chapter 2, you hear this prayer. You read this prayer, which is called Hannah's Song. And it's more than a simple thank you note post-pregnancy, post-having actually multiple children. It's more than a thank you note. It is a song of revolution. She says, the bows of the warriors are broken. Those who are hungry are hungry no more. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He raises the poor from the dust, and He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. This doesn't sound like a simple prayer of thanks, does it? It doesn't sound like something that a new mother would write just thanksgiving to God. This is a coup d'etat. This is a song of revolution. This is a song of an uprising against the brokenness of the world and the injustice of the, the injustice of the world, where the bows of the mighty are broken and the poor are raised from the dust. You see, Hannah is participating in a much larger story than just whether she has a child or not. Hannah's song penetrates the surface, pointing to the pillars of injustice that must be pulled down and that God wants to pull down. 
And some of these pillars are the dysfunctional social system that she lives in that put her in such a desperate situation in the first place. Her tears of anguish are for more than just a son. But her tears and her prayer, her sorrow, is for God to intervene in a broken world. She prays for more than the end of her tears. She prays for the end of all tears. Friends, it is okay to pray for a child. Absolutely. Permission to ask was point two. To ask God directly for things that we need. Hannah's prayer is never less than that, but it's far, far more. And I think this passage is inviting us to connect our prayers to a bigger story, a bigger narrative, something that is beyond just our personal needs, as important as those might be and as important as they are to God. To pray tears, in other words, not only for our misfortune, but for the misfortune of the world, for the brokenness of the world. Karl Barth said famously, to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. And we talked about how Hannah's action is very similar to God. She dedicates and gives up her most important prized possession, her son, just as God decides to do for your behalf and for my behalf. And what does Jesus do when he comes does he just teach? Does he just say, here's how, to, you get, how, here's how you get to heaven? No, he says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He had gut-level, heart-wrenching feeling for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's an uprising. That's a revolution against the injustice and the brokenness and the heartache and the tears of the world. And to be a Christian, friends, is to be caught up in that story, in that alternative story where things are not unraveling incessantly to everyone's death and finality of darkness, but things are being knit back together It's a story of a God who weeps over your tears and your misfortune and your brokenness, but also for the misfortune and the brokenness and the tears of the world. And He sends a weeping Savior to rescue it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for giving us permission to weep, permission to be sorrowful, to not have it all together to not possess perfect decorum all the time, that we can come before You and You receive us as we are. Father, I thank You for permission to ask, and we ask that You would be with us this week. We pray that You would send Your blessings and Your your love and Your justice upon this congregation and upon our city. And Father, I pray that You would give us permission and that we would take up our duty, our responsibility, our privilege to hope And I pray that you would infuse all of our stories wherever we find ourselves this morning with hope for the future and with hope for our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.